Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number three of History of Photography. This class session is the second part of a two-part survey of the history of photography, a sort of breakneck race through the history of the medium, starting here in the 19th century and winding up in the latter part of the 20th century. So here we are joining our class in progress. Uh, and start talking about the second half of our story. Before I start, I'm going to remind you that just like last time, today's class is a rush through the whole history. I don't want you to worry about details. I'm much more interested in having you look at the big picture. I don't want you to panic if we feel like we rushed past a particular thing because we're going to cover a lot of the stuff over and over and over again uh, that is really important. Everybody get their name on the sign-in sheet? Hoorah! All right, so this is like the panic avoidance thing. Those who do not learn how to decipher photographs will be the illiterate of the future, said Walter Benjamin. In 1928, 1928, those who do not learn how to decipher photographs will be the illiterate of the future. So uh, Walter Benjamin was a German uh, Marxist literary critic and a philosopher who uh, became a pretty important writer about photography. So, um, all right, so some review from last week. We'll remember that the first photograph, at least the first photograph that we know of as being the first photograph uh, made by Nieps in uh, the 1820s. And this is what it kind of looks like when enhanced uh, because the photograph that we just saw on screen doesn't look like much. Um, and, of course, we remember that the problem was a long exposure, which created a picture that didn't really look like much. It didn't really look like what you would expect a photograph to look like. Uh, but it was an image created without the hand of man involved in drawing any part of it. We'll also remember that Nieps <laughs> formed a partnership with fellow Frenchman de Guerre, and together they came up with a process that used uh, metal plates plated with silver, and those metal plates plated with silver were fumed over iodine to form silver iodide, or a light-sensitive compound, and those light-sensitive compound images uh, were exposed in the back of the camera for a long period of time, several minutes, 15, 20, 30 minutes, and then once the picture came out of the camera, there was no visible image, it was a latent or invisible image, and that plate was then fumed over a tray of heated mercury where lots of mercury landed and formed an amalgam with the silver, a silver-mercury amalgam. Here, you got uh, something that was light value, where very little light had hit, very little silver-mercury amalgam was made, and what you got was the plate reflecting back to you. Next week, I'll bring in some examples of daguerreotypes. So you'll actually be able to see what a daguerreotype looks like. And How hard would it be to make a daguerreotype today? Not terribly. Okay. Well. I shouldn't say not terribly hard. It is hard, and of course, it, uh, there and there are some newer methods that don't use mercury, at least not in the same way. Uh, and there are photographers doing it. So, uh, but it requires specialized equipment and so forth. And I shouldn't say it's not hard. Uh, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of other 19th-century processes that are way easier and cheaper to do. Were there any issues with the use of mercury? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we hear the phrase, mad as a hatter, 
right? Why does why did Hatters go crazy? They use mercury. What did they use mercury for? Why did why did a Hatter use mercury? Formula for the hats. They would use the mercury. They put mercury into the hat brims to make these elaborate hats that had brims that went out and curled and so forth and so on. And because they were handling mercury all the time, uh, they went, you know, a little nuts because mercury is a poison, right? Systemic poison. So we don't often hear Matt is a daguerreotypist, but you know they were going uh, they were going crazy in their own uh, their own little way too. So so yeah, there were problems with mercury fumes and daguerreotype uh, makers not recognizing that it was a poison, right? So all right, so daguerre forming this partnership with Nieps and being able to assure that there was going to be some success in their pictures, uh, that they knew what they were doing, they were able to figure out how to make pictures uh, rather regularly with some degree of, of reliable repeatability. Uh, most of the pictures were made of still objects because the exposures were up to a half an hour long, uh, usually 15 to 20 minutes long, uh, depending on the amount of light and the kinds of sensitizers they used on their daguerreotype plates. Uh, and then uh, we also remember that after Daguerre announces his process to the French Academy of Sciences, the news travels a little slowly a few days afterwards across the English Channel, and this William Henry Fox Talbot, this British guy who'd also been playing around with the same stuff for about the same amount of time, says, hey, wait a second, I'm working on something very similar to the stuff that, you, that, this, that this French guy is working on. Um, and Fox Talbot's process was a negative to positive process, where Daguerre's process was a singular, one-of-a-kind image, Singular one-of-a-kind image to negative positive. And what we wind up with is with Daguerre's process, the incredible sharpness and quality that we know photography to have. And with Fox Talbot's process, the repeatability of a single person's vision. We could make multiple copies from the single negative that Fox Talbot had. So uh, this relationship of these two things coming together at the same time of course, points to a number of things. One of the things that it points to is the climate of need. You know, there is this idea that, golly, if a bunch of people are working on the same kind of idea, somebody must want this thing to happen somehow. And then it also points out the idea that there are multiple ways to the same, to, of solution to the same problem. And it, I, I think, also really is fascinating that in these two processes, what we had was. Uh, the combination of the two things we value in photography. Sharp images of the real world and multiply reproducing one person's vision. Those things are really interesting to me. So, and we talked about the power of the photographic image and the way in which the photographic image uh, could be used to communicate not only small ideas but also bigger ideas. And for this family it might have been a fairly small idea but in many ways it's also a kind of a big idea because what's happening is that they're able to gather themselves together in a way that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And it also points us to the idea that daguerreotype pictures, especially pictures of people, were unbelievably popular. Very, very popular. Daguerreotype portraiture was very popular, and as we'll see really more next week, but about 90, 95% of all daguerreotypes ever made were pictures of people, not pictures of places. And that was because they were singular images. It was really hard to take a picture of, you know, 
half dome and walk it around to 100 people that you wanted to have see it because there was only one. But wet plate collodion, the negative making process that allowed negatives to be made on glass plates and have multiple prints made, was not quite as sharp as the daguerreotype, but was much sharper than the paper negative of Fox Talbot's process. And then we wound up last time talking about this guy, George Eastman, with his Kodak camera in 1888. And Eastman kind of figuring out all of the puzzle pieces of photography that had kept it from the hands of every person. One was the kind of cumbersome quality of glass plates, and Eastman overcame that with flexible roll-up film. And the problematic uh, deal with having to use a darkroom, and Eastman overcame that by selling you the camera preloaded with film and then offering to develop it for you for a fee and sending it back to you loaded again. His motto, you press the button, we do the rest. They didn't have to worry about, anybody who took one of these cameras in hand didn't have to worry about anything beyond pressing the button. Eastman and his company took care of everything else. By the time Eastman's camera comes around in 1888, photography had been absorbed into most of the world's cultures. Not all of them, of course. There were still pockets of culture around the world that had not experienced photography. Uh, but by this time, it was no longer a novel thing to have had one's photograph made or to have seen photographs by 1888 when Eastman comes up with this Kodak camera. But still, there were some problems. There were some shortcomings that photography had. And here they are, at least some of them. One of them was size. So even though the wet plate collodion process could be a large image, you could make a 16 by 20 inch glass plate negative from which you could make a 16 by 20 inch print, there was still the problem of having to lug to the scene a 16 by 20 camera, a camera that made a negative this big, 16 by 20. So that was one problem. Speed was another problem, or rather lack of speed. Photography still in 1888 had a hard time capturing swiftly moving subjects because the exposure times, even though Eastman and other inventors had figured out fractional shutter speeds, still photography wasn't terribly fast. Ink, which I have here in quotations, because ink is really the lack of ink. If you wanted to reproduce a picture and give it to 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people, you had to draw it in order to get it in an ink format. In other words, the only way to distribute a photograph was to make photographic prints from the original, which was costly and very time-consuming, and it meant that you couldn't have photographs in magazines or newspapers or books. In order to get a photograph there, you had to hire somebody to draw it so that you could print the thing in ink. Another question was proper use. What, 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 what was this? What was it supposed to be? Was it art? Well, it kind of had come from the original idea of artists and painters, but was it really art? Was it commerce? Was it something that allowed us to copy the world? Was it some weird hybrid that nobody really understood? So what was photography supposed to be for was another big question. Another issue was color, or again, the lack of color. One of the first complaints people had about photography right after it was invented was, well, that's all well and good, but I was wearing a purple vest. And the purple vest is shown as gray. What's up with that? How can we rectify that problem? 
And a last problem was spectral sensitivity. Oh, I forgot about the, the speed part. I forgot about this little speed part. One solution to the speed problem was to use flash powder. You've probably seen this in an old movie somewhere. You know, it's usually done with some comic effect. Uh, and somebody, you know, lights a match and puts it in a tray of this magnesium powder. That's what it was, magnesium powder. And it goes off with an intense flash. Uh, but, of course, the problem was it also produced a lot of smoke and potentially fire. And so, you know, there were some issues with that. So, uh, so spectral sensitivity is another, another problem. Uh, and we'll sort of cover all of these guys. But one of the biggest questions about the medium was, what is it? What's it supposed to be for? And how can photographers who think of themselves as creative people, how can photographers begin to think of a way to posit what they're doing as art, even though it doesn't require the same length of study or certain kinds of skills that painting and drawing had required, the only other visual art form that had existed other than sculpture, painting, drawing, sculpture. And then this new thing comes along, and the real big question was, what was it? So a combination of a couple of things was solving the what was it problem with also solving the spectral sensitivity problem. One of the problems with this wet plate collodion material was that it was very sensitive to blue light and very insensitive to the opposite side of the color wheel, red, yellow, light. So what happened was, if you made a photograph that allowed for correct exposure of the rocks and stuff in the foreground, that the sky would become wildly overexposed and become blank. So photographers were you know, confronted with this problem. If I got the correct exposure for the bottom, well, I couldn't get the correct exposure for the sky. How do I solve that problem? Well, some photographers, like this guy, Gustave Legray, in 1865, and note that we kind of backed up just a little bit, Gustave Legray solves it by doing this, making one picture for the bottom and making another picture correctly exposed for the sky, and taking those two pictures, masking off the printing paper, and printing one negative, taking that negative away, and printing the other negative. Wow thinking of the idea of making a composite image, an image that never really existed in reality. Legray even recognized that it might be possible to make a sky on a really great sky day and an ocean view or other view on a really great ocean day and put two things together that never really existed together in reality. Here is Gustave Legray. Give me a sense of what this guy looked like. <laughs> the moody artist, right? So one of the things that's really interesting to me anyway, and certainly was when I first learned about this, was that this is something that we think of as being a 20th and 21st century phenomenon of taking two separate images and putting them together to make a synthetic picture. The thing that's really important to remember, though, is not so much how, like this, how this is like Photoshop but instead to remember something completely different. And that is that this picture never actually existed like this. That it isn't a picture of reality. The sky is a different time, perhaps. Different time of the day, 
maybe, might even be the same day, might even be the same time, but from the photographic point of view, it never really existed. And so that's an important thing for us to kind of keep in mind. Moving on, 1857, there's this guy, Oscar Raylander. Oscar Raylander. Now, Raylander was extremely interested in trying to figure out how to make photographs that looked like art, with a capital A. Because what he figured was that photography could, in fact, be like any other art form, as long as it approached the subject from the same kind of point of view. So, first of all, in order to get this picture, we have to kind of begin to think in the 19th century mindset. So first of all, what we have here is we have a time period, 1857, when people were thinking of the world in a different way, partly because there was a tremendous reverence for the world of ancient Greece. So you can kind of see that reflected in the costumes in this picture. Another thing that was important in this era was that paintings and stories often used a concept called allegory. So what's allegory? What's an allegorical story? Try it. Find out. Couldn't, the worst thing you can be is wrong. The frog and the tarantula, or the tortoise and the hare, or whatever, right? So let's use tortoise and hare because, you know, that's one that most everybody knows. Frog and tarantula, same basic concept, right? But tortoise and the hare. So the tortoise and the hare story goes that the two things start out at the starting point at the same time, and the, the tortoise is slow and steady, uh, and the hare runs ahead really fast and then finds some other things that are interesting, and, you know, eventually... Who wins the race? The tortoise, because persistence. persistence, slow and steady, wins the race. Is that story about a bunny and a turtle? No. no, it is not. It is about the idea of being persistent and keeping on with something and eventually achieving a goal. And we can think of hundreds of these once we begin to think of them. Uh, the Bible is filled with them. Uh, ancient Greek uh, uh, storytelling is filled with them. It is very much a sort of idea that helps humanize larger concepts. In this time period, allegorical painting was a big deal. Having paintings that depicted other stuff was a big deal. So that what you got in a painting was somebody representing love or somebody else representing death. So that the people were not actually characters named Bob or Sally, but they instead were representing an idea. So Oscar Raylander decided to make a photographic allegory that he called the two ways of life, in which we see a guide showing two young men the two possible paths that they could choose to live their lives. And what we see is that this guy is being shown a world of study, guy with a spanner on a globe, and industry, these guys building something with hammers and saws, and somebody reading, somebody doing something that is pious, 
somebody helping the sick. Whereas this guy has, oh, I don't know, there's gambling, there's drunkenness, there's, well, I'm going to guess we can figure out what that might be. <laughs> and you can see that he thinks that this is a pretty good idea. And his guide is saying, but wait, it might not be the real deal. All right, so this picture, The Two Ways of Life, is set up as an allegory. Ray Lander himself said, please believe that I did not look upon photography as an ultimate art or an art depending on itself or complete in itself except details, though I can guess of its extended applicability or rather its plasticity. Plasticity. When we talk about something that's plastic in the arts, what do we mean? Flexible, malleable, changeable. Flexible, malleable, changeable. We don't mean plastic like, you know, plastic. We mean flexible, malleable, changeable. All right? So, anybody uh, photograph in the studio? Spend any time, significant time photographing in the studio? So, you know, if you could imagine doing this in the studio, first of all, what would you need? Light, light. Lights, big studio, big studio lights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, 1857, were there lights? No. No. It'd be tough to light this, right? And in fact, Raylander didn't. He took these pictures individually, 30, three zero, separate negatives, combining them, printing one after the other, after the other, after the other, on a single sheet of photographic printing paper. 30 separate negatives. And if you think about the fact that he's making these negatives and could not change their enlargement by projection because it's a contact printing medium, he had to figure out how big to make this figure relative to how big to make these figures that are in the background and have the perspective all work out correctly. In fact, he couldn't print it on one sheet of photographic paper because nobody made a piece of paper big enough. This thing was 30 inches wide, so he had to seam it right about here there's a seam of two different pieces of paper. 30 images. A completely fictionalized picture. None of these people were in the same place at the same time. While it looks to us that they're all in some same room, they are not. They are not. And oftentimes this comes as just a complete brain shock to people. The idea that you could put together 30 separate images in 1857 and come out with one significant picture. So it was very similar to paintings that were made in the era, except made with photographs. Rainlander was thinking about photography as a way to replicate what artists were doing, whereas Henry Peach Robinson was thinking about a way to use this idea to make uh, a living. Because what he was doing was he was telling stories through pictures in a serialized fashion. So most of us know a similar time period here, uh, Charles Dickens, right? And most of us know at least enough about Dickens to know that oftentimes he released his stories in serialized fashion, right? That you'd go to the store and you'd buy chapter one and then you know, a few weeks later chapter two, in much the same way we might think of television series where one comes after the other comes after the other. Robinson did the same thing with photographic images and created a set of stories that told a story that had a beginning and a middle and an end. And every few weeks you would go to the store and you'd buy the next chapter. This particular image called Fading Away, which was part of a larger set of, a larger set of images that told a story, 
about this family, including young Nell, who is fading away. Uh, we'll talk more about young Nell later on in the semester. It was made up of one image here for the nurse and the, and the young girl, and another image here for the mother or the grandmother, another image for the father at the window, and another image for the view outside the window, composited together in such a way as to make a singular image. Here is an example of how Robinson thought about this process. He thought it through so clearly that he figured out how big to make each individual figure by making sketches ahead of time, because if you think about it, he had to know exactly how big to make the foreground objects and how big to make the background objects in order to make it all fit together. So Robinson and Raylander, these guys who are making synthetic images, are trying to replicate the world of plasticity, the world of changeability or malleability that painting already had by using the newer medium of photography. Well, some people didn't like it, didn't like that strategy at all. One of them was this guy, Peter Henry Emerson. Peter Henry Emerson was a guy who thought that art photography, as the pictures that we just looked at had come to be known, they'd come to be known as art photography. And Emerson thought art photography was not the way photography should be moving. He felt that photography could be the highest art form if it was practiced correctly, meaning not manipulated, not altered, not making synthetic pictures up. And he also believed that retouching a negative, which was fairly common practice, you could take and you know paint out little sections on these big glass plates, and they were big, right? So it was pretty easy to paint out stuff. So he didn't think that that should happen either. And so he wrote some, uh, some materials uh, about how people should practice photography. One of them was a book that he called Naturalistic Photography for Students of the Arts. And in this book, he advocated a certain set of ideas. One was that he said that the subject matter that photographers should pay attention to should be true and real. And he said, for example, what I've been doing is I've been photographing people in this section of England uh, where they live in a kind of a marshy area, and they gather reeds, and they fish, and they hunt, and they make baskets, and they live very close to the land, and I'm making these realistic pictures of the way people work and live without trying to make something up. I'm not trying to make up a story. I'm not trying to fictionalize anything. I'm simply wanting to show the way people are. So this book that he wrote, Naturalistic Photography for Students of the Art, which is more like a small pamphlet or a magazine than a book itself, he wrote it in 1889. And one critic of the day said that the book's arrival was like dropping a bomb at a tea party. Like dropping a bomb at a tea party. Such was the radical idea that photography should not try to be anything other than what it really was, which in Emerson's belief was real and true to life. In this book, he made the case for photography in which truth and realism would replace contrived photography. So 1889 is when he wrote this, this book originally. And what's interesting is that in 1891, he wrote another book called The Death of Naturalistic Photography. <laughs> in which he said, you know, he was wrong, he was sorry, he 
He didn't mean to cause such a ruckus, but he uh, didn't think photography was much of anything other than a minor copying medium, and therefore he was going to go off and uh, never was really heard from again. But in this short span of a couple of years, tremendous changes happened in photography. A huge number of photographers began following Emerson and his beliefs about photography and the fact that it should be of real subjects, real things. A group called the Pictorialists and a movement called Pictorialism grew out of Emerson's ideas. So this death of naturalistic photography, uh, in it, he writes, uh, I have, and I regret it deeply, compared photography to great works of art and photo photographers to great artists. It was rash and thoughtless, and my punishment is having to acknowledge it now. In short, I throw in my lot with those who say photography is a very limited art. I deeply regret that I've come to this conclusion. And he was really never heard from again. But again, his work in trying to establish photography as a realistic medium had already sort of taken hold. So, on the other side of the coin, and by the way, if it seems as though there's like a maelstrom going on, there is. Right about this time period, in the 1880s through the 1920s, there's so many different things going on in photography, it's really hard to sort of sort them out. So, at the same time period, some photographers had hit upon this idea of a kind of process called the gum bichromate. Gum bichromate. You'll sometimes see it written as gum dichromate, D-I instead of B-I. Basically the same chemical, different kind of a compounding of the chemical, uh, but it's basically the same idea. So, and again, you don't have to worry too much about this. We're going to cover all of this stuff again, but don't, you know, don't spend too much time fretting about these chemicals. But potassium bichromate was a light-sensitive compound, and it was mixed up with something called gum arabic, which was a kind of a, a goopy stuff. It was actually the, the sap from a tree. You can kind of think of what that might be like, a kind of a goopy stuff. It could be poured, uh, liquidy kind of a stuff. And it was together with potassium bichromate, this gum arabic was a kind of a medium that held this all together. And it was mixed with artist pigment, like watercolor pigment. All this stuff mixed up as a slurry, coated over a piece of paper, and let dry. A negative was then placed on top of this dried emulsion of potassium bichromate, gum arabic, and pigment. That was coated over that piece of paper. Negative placed in contact, and the whole sandwich of negative, a piece of glass to hold it down, and the sensitized paper put out into the sun. Where lots of light hit, this emulsion would stay kind of solid. It would tan or become hardened. Where very little light hit, the dense part of the negative, the emulsion would float away when it was immersed in water. It wouldn't harden as much. And where middle and amounts of light hit, it would sort of float away some of the emulsion and some of it would stay behind, leaving behind the paper surface to be seen through this emulsion. And you could mix this pigment in any color you wanted or combination of colors. So you could mix a brownish picture or a greenish picture or a purplish picture or whatever. But what artists who were taking up photography really liked is that while this thing was wet, while it was floating in a tray of water and the, the pieces of emulsion that had not been exposed very much were floating away, they could go in with 
a brush or their fingernails or a jet of water or whatever you could think of, and they could scoot away some parts of the emulsion to create effects that made the picture look more like a painting. These were photographers who were interested in trying to figure out ways to make a photograph look like a painted object. So gum bichromate. By the way, uh, I'm just thinking about this now. Um, if any of you are on Twitter, during our class periods, I didn't mention this last week because you had enough to worry about, but during our class periods, the software I'm using here is sending out tweets. And the tweets have things like the one that just went by is a video about gum bichromate. Uh, so, and you can find these if you're on Twitter. How many people on Twitter? If you're on Twitter, you can search the hashtag photo history. So hashtag photo history. And if you're friends with me on Facebook, my Twitter posts always post directly to Facebook too. So you can go to my Facebook page as well. And as if that weren't enough, on the History of Photography podcast page, all of the photo history tweets appear in the right-hand column of that, of that page. So you can kind of follow this stuff. So Robert Desmarchais, F.J. Mortimer. There's the guy whose name I spelled wrong on the handout. F.J. Mortimer. These photographers are beginning to use this process to create photographs that look more like charcoal drawings, etchings, paintings, some other kind of art form, rather than, rather than a photographic document. Because they're really interested in trying to figure out what is this thing for, this photography. Is it supposed to be like painting but different? They would even sometimes, like Frank Eugene, take and scratch on the glass plate negative that they were making to scratch away some of the details there to create a more painterly effect. So again, there are people in this pictorialist movement who are trying to figure out how to make realistic pictures of realistic subjects, but then there's also this group of photographers who are saying, you know, and what I want to do is make my photographs look more like a painting or a drawing. And then there's this guy, Frederick Evans, who was using a, guy, a kind of a process called platinum printing. Platinum printing. So uh, this process was invented in England uh, by a guy named William Willis in 1873. And uh, in this process the material platinum or the metal platinum replaces silver. Replaces silver. So it's a little more complicated than that. And then again, the, the process is well laid out in the short technical history. But what it gave was a very long, very smooth tonal scale. Platinum printing is often referred to as the king of all photographic processes because of its tonal nuance and beauty. It has a real beautiful long tonal scale. Almost every nuance of the negative can easily be reproduced in a platinum print, whereas a silver print, some of you have made darkroom prints, how many of you have worked in a darkroom, and you've discovered that at some point you have to leave out some details in the bottom or some details in the top, high-end highlights, or both, right? The platinum print can make an image that is tonally nuanced throughout its range. So Frederick Evans was one of those photographers who used this process, and he used it effectively in making a series of photographs of uh, European cathedrals and churches with their light-drenched interiors but also very dark areas 
he was able to make some extraordinary photographs with glass plate negatives and platinum prints. So this material, this platinum printing, was uh, popular until about 1905, and then it kind of fell off. So what happened in 1905, and why would that thing affect photography? Well, it had to be a new process. Revolution, January 9th, 1905, Bloody Sunday, 150,000 people protest the Tsar, hundreds are shot, the Russian Revolution, wait, why would the Russian Revolution impact photography? What does Russia do really well? They mine platinum. Uh... Russia mines platinum. They still mine most of the world's platinum. And what do we know about platinum in a general way? Yeah, really, really expensive, right? The most really precious the most precious of all the precious metals. So the Russian Revolution starts, and suddenly the world supply of platinum goes whoop. There isn't any platinum anymore. So people can't make platinum prints. And the reason I include this, these kinds of little details is we don't think about photography as being this sort of phenomenon that's tied into other parts of the world economy and the world's uh, events. But in fact, oftentimes, it really is. Here's another one of Frederick Evans' uh, images, one of my favorites. Um, and Evans didn't believe any of this manipulated imagery idea. He really just believed in photographs that are just straightforward and to the point. This has always been one of my favorite photographs to talk about how important the positioning of cameras is. Not only does Evans sort of put us with this wonderful entry point of the stairs here and the sort of flow of the stairs as they go up, but look at how he has defined the number of rooms that we get to look through by defining the, the archways. Here's one. There's another one back here. And then there's another little blip here that he lets us know that this is a solid wall that's behind this arched area and that there's another door inside of that. So it's a really interesting way to kind of look at how important it is to position the camera up and down, left and right, so forth and so on. So if uh, if uh, Evans is doing this kind of stuff, we've got this other guy sort of jumping into the fray here. Alfred Stieglitz, an iconoclast. Hey, what's an iconoclast? Breaks icons. Say again? He breaks icons. He breaks icons. He breaks icons. He's a guy who's kind of going to mess with the status quo. He wants to go ahead and kind of push the envelope and uh, attack some cherished ideas attack some cherished institutions and you know, sort of move things around and shake some cages and so forth. Stieglitz didn't hold with all of this pictorialist stuff. He liked images that were real. In fact, he very much liked images that were like the same kind of images that this, uh, that this Emerson guy liked, the guy who wrote that book, Naturalistic Photography for Students of the Art. Stieglitz and this bullet item, I, I try not to make my slides too terribly wordy, but sometimes I can't help myself. This one, one of the most important photographers and promoters of photography of the 20th century. In fact, we'll spend an entire class session talking about Stieglitz and the other photographers that he gathered around him. He had this really interesting active period, the 1880s to the 1940s. And the reason that that's an interesting time period is that so much happens in photography around that time period in that kind of 20 or 30 years on either side of the turn of the century from the 19th 
to the 20th century. Stieglitz did something that uh, no other photographer, no other group of photographers had ever done, and that was that he seceded from photography. He gathered around him a group of photographers who believed the same things that he believed, and they drew up formal papers, and they went to court, and they said, we're getting out of photography. We're photographers, but we don't like the way this whole medium is working out. We're going to secede. We're going to start our own movement, separate and, and apart from the way the world of photography is. And the reason they were doing it was that they felt photography could be an art form. It could be an art form, and it could be an art form all on its own. It didn't have to try and look like anything else. It didn't have to try and look like a painting or a drawing or an etching or anything else other than a photograph. And so Stieglitz's pictures of real people in real situations, of real landscapes, of real places, are the pictures that uh, he kind of brings things forward with. So he makes pictures of real people doing real work. You can see Emerson's influence here. And we'll talk about how Stieglitz, as a young man in his teens, becomes a super important worldwide influential power in photography. Uh, in the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century. He was also uh, somebody who was one of the first people to begin using handheld cameras. Now, handheld cameras, we think of our handheld cameras like our, you know, like our camera phones or smaller than our DSLRs or think maybe our DSLRs are handheld cameras. In Stieglitz's time, a handheld camera might be, oh, I don't know, half the size of my uh, lectern here. Something that you held in your hand rather than having it on top of a, an immovable object like a tripod or a studio stand. And what happened was that as Stieglitz comes on in the 1880s and 1890s, the materials of photography have moved forward enough that you could hold a camera in your hand and make an exposure that was a fraction of a second as opposed to several seconds long. Dry glass plates were a big part of that, and then Eastman's roll film a little bit afterwards. So Stieglitz begins to experiment with a camera that could move and that could be sort of moving around, and he could take pictures of things that were technically difficult, like this picture, or that depended upon the movement of the world, uh, like this one. And we'll come back to this picture, the steerage of, of 1902, and look at how it is one of Stieglitz's most important pictures. In fact, some people call this picture the first modern photograph uh, right around the turn of the century. And we'll talk about how it's composed all the way around the edges with very little in the center. And Stieglitz would talk later about how many references there are from one part of the photograph to the other. The oval here and the oval here, the X here and the X here. So we'll spend some time later on talking about that. Stieglitz gathered together this group of photographers named the photo secessionists, these people who abandoned ship of photography and started their own navy in a way. And one of his right-hand men was this guy, Edward Steichen. He was from Wisconsin, not from New York like Stieglitz was. And here he is in his self-portrait portraying himself as he really was. He really was a painter who came to photography with well-established credentials as a painter. And what's really interesting is that 
here he is saying that what he's doing is dropping out of photography as one of these photosecessionists, but he's using gum bichromate. Look at it. You can see where he's scraped away some emulsion here and up here and over there. So part of what we'll have to try and figure out as we go through all of this is, hey, wait a second, aren't these guys saying one thing and doing another thing? The photosecessionist group uh, created some galleries in New York City. Uh, the, the most important one was the Little Galleries of the Photosecession, which they started in 1905. And in addition to their own photographs, the photographs of the photosecessionist group, they also showed paintings next to their photographs. And the paintings were by people nobody would ever heard of. In fact, Stieglitz in his galleries in, in New York was the first person to show the paintings of Picasso and Cezanne and Matisse. These were artists that he imported from Europe who were avant-garde, completely different. And by putting them side by side with his photographs, he was sort of advancing this idea of photography as an art form. Here are a couple of more of Steichen's images. <coughs> Steichen, who already knew a lot of people in the art world, here he is with Auguste Rodin and his famous sculpture, The Thinker. Sometimes I... I tried the Dobie Gillis reference. Dobie Gillis? Uh, no, you won't get Dobie Gillis. You're way too young for Dobie. Dobie Gillis, anybody? Any Dobie? I know. Yeah, all right. Jim, no? All right. It was a television show where it was a beatnik guy and he was supposed to look like the thinker. You're showing my age, right? <laughs> Another one of these photosecessionist photographers was a woman. In fact, nearly a third of the photosecessionist photographers were female. And this was also kind of radical. Photographers being championed by a group who were women. Gertrude Kasebeer. Am I close on that? Oh, I should learn German student is not here. I was gonna get my try my German pronunciation. I've, I've <coughs> learned it I've learned it a couple of different ways. Kasebeer uh, is the way I've uh, the way I've kind of settled on. So Kazebeer is another one of these secessionist photographers, and she's really interesting because she's somebody who already has a, a portrait studio in New York City, but she's decided uh, as she joins the photo secession that you know her portraits are not like everybody else's portraits. They're art portraits. She charges more than anybody else charges for portraits, and she makes uh, pictures that are, in her mind, uh, and in many critics' minds, uh, more sensitive than other portrait photographers were doing. Stieglitz and this group of photosecessionists, which include Kazebeer, uh, organized the first major U.S. photographic exhibition in 1900, uh, which was held at the Art Institute of Chicago in uh, our little downtown, not too far. And it included a lot of these photographers' work, Kazebeer, Stieglitz, Steichen. And by the way, the Stieglitz and Steichen, easy to get those two guys mixed up. You just have to remember that Stieglitz is the leader, Steichen is the sort of second-hand guy, second-in-charge second guy. When some people saw this exhibition in 1900, uh, many of them didn't like it. One critic said, we have here merely the excesses of a diseased imagination, which has been fostered by the ravings of a few lunatics. So clearly this Ouch. was outside the box. Um, that is... 
So another couple of bits, and we'll, we'll take a break here in just a, a couple of minutes, but another couple of bits that are worth noting. And one of them is that photography at some point gathers a social conscience. And the social conscience part of photography is really intriguing because it's tied in very closely with halftone reproduction. Halftone reproduction. Has anybody looked at a newspaper or a magazine or a book that has a photograph in it today? Nobody? Really? We only just looked at screens? Oh my gosh, the world's changing. So, so you looked at some sort of magazine, newspaper, book, something. If you look at a newspaper, a magazine, or a book anywhere, you are looking at something called a halftone reproduction. So the halftone reproduction means that we can take a single photograph and more easily and more inexpensively reproduce it in thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies very, very quickly. And because of that, photography now could be disseminated to larger and larger groups of people. And one of the first things that it did was begin to target social problems and figure out ways that it could uh, that it could deal with social problems. And in fact, the rise of photojournalism, in fact, the invention of photojournalism is completely tied to this halftone reproduction. Photojournalism, completely tied to the advent of halftone reproduction. So let's see if we can figure out what halftone reproduction is. So this guy is the inventor of it, this Frederick Eves. Uh, he invented the halftone in the 1880s. And what he figured out was that since a printing press can only print ink or no, on or off, yes or no, black or white, a printing press couldn't print subtle variations of gray. He figured out that the way to solve the problem was, and all I've done here is just enlarged this image to this so you can kind of see it a little bit better, that if what you did was translate the photograph into tiny little dots, if you go home and look at a magazine or a newspaper or a book, you'll see these little dots. You've got to look at it really close, depending. If the newspaper, not so close. If it's a high-quality book, really close, because the dots in a high-quality book are really little. The dots in a newspaper are quite a bit bigger. And so he figured out that if he made these dots so that the closer they were together and the bigger they were, you got dark tonality. The farther apart they were and the smaller they were, you got light tonality. And if you kind of varied the distance and the size of the dots, you could create the illusion of a continuous tone image. It was just an illusion. It wasn't really a photographic image, but it allowed pictures to be reproduced by the thousands or hundreds of thousands. Uh, and some photographers took advantage of this. And again, photojournalism tied directly to halftone reproduction. So Jakob Ries put together a book called How the Other Half Lives. How the Other Half Lives. Sort of an interesting uh, uh, title because, you know, we sort of oftentimes think to ourselves, you know, as we're driving through some sort of upscale neighborhood, well, this must be how the other half lives. Well, he sort of flips this upside down and looks at the plight of especially immigrants and very especially immigrant children who were living in slums and tenements, working long hours in sweatshops, and targeted this as something that he wanted to try and solve as a social problem. So he began making photographs, sometimes at night, using that flash powder that we talked about a little bit earlier, and making pictures of where people were sleeping, how much they were working, the conditions in which they were working. And in fact, his book, 
helped get some laws passed that allowed for uh, a, a better treatment of, of people in, in some ways, especially kids, uh, children working. Another photographer whose, uh, uh, whose work depended a lot on uh, half-tone reproduction and being able to be disseminated that way was Lewis Hine. Lewis Hine uh, both looked at child labor issues, as we can see in this left-hand picture, but he also did something else that was really interesting on a sort of socially conscious level. The other thing that he did that was interesting was uh, he targeted uh, people arriving at Ellis Island. And the people arriving at Ellis Island, he'd set up a camera and take pictures, hundreds of them a day sometimes, of these immigrants as they came ashore. Because he was concerned that there were so many of them that they were going to lose their own identity. That they weren't going to become the people here that they had been at home. Uh, he saw names being changed, and I'll, I'll bet that at least a half a people, the half a dozen people in this room, have some history of their name being changed by somebody on Ellis Island. You know, what do you do for a living, and that becomes your name rather than the difficult to spell or difficult to pronounce name that that uh, your family had in whatever country you came from. So here is Lewis Hine trying to battle that problem. So let's look at this one last guy, and then and then we'll, uh, we'll we'll take a break. And this one last guy is sort of a wonderful place to, to take a break here, partly because he straddles a couple of, of pieces of the photographic puzzle. Eugene Otjay, a funny name, Otjay. Eugene Otjay was uh, a French photographer, uh, uh, a masterful French photographer, and Otjay. Uh, was he started out his, his career, his life, not as a photographer at all, but instead as an actor. He was an actor, and he was really interested in the world of theater, but at some point he began to make photographs because what he saw was Paris and the environs around the Paris that he lived in was beginning to change. He noticed that it was changing a lot, and he noticed that things were morphing and buildings were being knocked down and the Paris of his youth was beginning to be replaced by a, a more modern Paris. And he didn't like it. And so he set upon uh, making a, a, a sort of survey of photographs of Paris and the areas around Paris and photographed everything. Shop windows, <coughs> people, places, major buildings, minor buildings, storefronts, the great parks, Versailles, all the things that he felt were in danger of being lost to the ages. He wanted to recreate the Paris of the past uh, and try to make sure that those areas that were marked for demolition had some life in photographs. He made a vast number of images. There are some estimates that there may have been as many as 10,000 photographs made. Now, in our digital world, we don't think of that as being such a big deal, but in the days of starting out with wet plate collodion and then moving to dry glass plates, this is a huge, huge, huge number of photographs. Uh, and he made photographs of just about everything that you could imagine having any significance uh, in Paris. And uh, he created this, uh, this view or vision of Paris that is uh, both profoundly real and also partially dream. Uh, and he ends up becoming one of the most important photographers uh, of the 
late 19th and early 20th century. But what's really intriguing is that his work really didn't at all become known until the 1970s. The 1970s. People knew about it, but nobody really resurrected it until a couple of photographers, photographers we'll look at a little bit later on in the term, uh, Lee Friedlander and Bernice Abbott, kind of grasped onto his work and pushed it forward. And he's become known uh, since then as one of the most important photographers. He is, in fact, one of my desert island photographers, you remember in my little bio intro thing. Uh, you know, he's the guy I would take with me uh, to, to learn a lot about photography without having to make any pictures. Another one of these uh, uh, photographers who sort of came of age around the turn of the century or a little after uh, is this Paul Strand. And uh, what's interesting about Strand, a, a major American photographer from the east coast of the, of the U.S., Strand really got his start by showing his work to Alfred Stieglitz. And Stieglitz praised his work and said that it was brutally direct and pure and devoid of trickery. Brutally direct, pure and devoid of trickery. Uh, Strand espoused this idea of straight photography and believed that the camera had its own aesthetic. Kind of rings like Stieglitz, right? You know, it sounds like what Stieglitz was saying that the camera had its own aesthetic, that it didn't have to try and be like something else. So Paul Strand, here's another Paul Strand image. You know, I've always been fascinated by this sort of, uh, I don't know, riveting gaze that this kid has and the sort of you know, other rivets or you know, nails or whatever. It's almost like the things have some sort of synergy, the background of the image. Uh, and, uh, and the foreground of the image. So Strand was one of the first photographers to sort of say, you know, photography doesn't have to be like it has been. It can be pure. It can be uh, about straightforward things. And uh, he was joined from the East Coast. He was joined on the West Coast by this guy, Edward Weston. Weston, along with uh, some other West Coast photographers. Weston was uh, uh, somebody who kind of was a pioneer in the way photography uh, kind of uh, took, went forward. So Weston uh, decided that he and this other group of West Coast photographers shared a similar aesthetic. And their similar aesthetic was based on making large format camera pictures with 4x5 or 8x10 cameras, contact printing those negatives so that the pictures were tremendously sharp, shooting at very small aperture settings like f64. In fact, they liked this idea of small apertures and tremendous depth of field so much that they formed their own group, a group that they called f64. They called it Group F64 because they believed that this idea of tremendous depth of field, tremendous attention to the quality and detail of the photographic image was super important. And so, yeah, just set it up there, thanks. Uh, so what we get is Weston, and you know, oftentimes uh, some, of, some of his pictures are seen side by side. I've, I've chosen this pairing. Sometimes you'll see 
a, a picture of a pepper, pepper number 30, uh, head down nude and this uh, two shells. So the idea of sculptural sensuality uh, in, his, uh, in his imagery. So he founded or helped found this group called Group F64, feeling that realism was photography's main calling. Uh, tremendous depth of field, beautiful prints. In fact, Weston was also the guy who said before he made the picture, he would see in his mind's eye the way the print was going to look. He was so in control of the photographic process that he'd be able to sort of imagine what the tonal values of the print would look like, where the boundaries of the print would be. Obviously, he'd compose that part, but he'd sort of understand the way the print was going to look. He called that a pre-visualization, pre-visualization, imagining the way the picture was going to look after the print was made. Uh, and in some ways, this was a reaction to the kind of sentimental photography that had been in vogue before that time. So F64 became a kind of a blanket term to describe this kind of photography. But another term that became popular to use was precisionist. So I also like to pause at this picture because it allows us to talk about a photographic uh, or a, a, an art method of describing things. How many people know the terms positive space and negative space? Positive space, negative space. So if you were to describe positive and negative space in this photograph by Weston of his son's torso, Neil's torso, what would you describe as positive space? Jump in. Positive space up by the head, negative space lower. Mm -hmm. Actually, his torso would be the positive space. His torso is the positive space, right? right. And the negative spaces are these Dark. guys on either side. And it's depending on the, the sort of uh, uh, arrangement of where he's placed the, the borders, left and right, about how we see these spaces as sort of beautiful undulating spaces. Positive space, negative space. So the negative space is the stuff that surrounds what we would think of as the prime subject. Correct. Uh, it doesn't always have to be vacant the way this is, uh, but the prime subject is the positive space. And so this idea of precisionism is something that's interesting because it doesn't end up just covering photography. It also covers things like Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, paintings that are about a precise way of seeing the world. So precisionism isn't just photography in the 20th century. And what happens is that a lot of these ideas of uh, of precisionist photography crossover to painting and painting over to photography. Another member of this Group F64 crowd was this guy, Ansel Adams. Ansel Adams, who we'll talk about in a couple of different contexts throughout our time together this semester. Um, I always like to say that Ansel Adams is one of the few household names in photography. He's one of the few people that if you ever bring a black and white photograph and show it to people, especially if it's of the natural world, they'll say Ansel Adams because his name is sort of synonymous with these black and white natural world photographs. <laughs> but he's a member of this group F64 and uh, really kind of in some ways a student of Edward Weston's because Weston is older, has been involved in photography longer than Adams had been, and uh, had been uh, successful at photography before Adams had been. So, But he too is a member of the group F64 crowd. And it's also interesting to note that Adams takes Weston's idea of pre-visualization and pushes it quite a bit farther forward. 
to end up creating something that many of you have probably learned or tried to learn, even though it's not really that hard to learn, called the zone system. And the zone system is this method that Adams came up with to put together the really complex science of how photography, at least chemical-based photography, worked and put it together with the way photographers think. We think about tone values, but the photographic world doesn't really care about tone values. It cares about sensitometry and density of negatives and tonal values that uh, can be achieved in prints. And so Adams puts all this stuff together in a way that makes it simpler for photographers to create a better quality image. It's also interesting to note that this picture on the right is what Adams thought of as his first real photograph. The first photograph in which he was able to create something that went beyond what he saw and really worked on what he felt. So he was making photographs on that day and looking at this uh, monolithic form in the Yosemite Valley and thinking about what it felt like to stand there in that place and recognize that the first picture he made uh, with just a yellow filter over the lens of the camera to slightly darken the sky really wouldn't do it. So instead he puts a deep red filter over the lens of the camera which with his pan chromatic film, talk about that here in a second, made the sky much, much darker. So you'll remember back when we were talking at the very beginning this evening about how uh, these early photographic materials were very sensitive to blue and very insensitive to red. Long about the turn of the century or thereabouts, film became panchromatic. Just think about that. Pantheistic, the pantheon. Panchromatic, meaning sensitive to all colors of light. So pan meaning all. So panchromatic, sensitive to all colors of light. So what this made possible was things like what Adams did. Using a red filter darkens the blue sky to a dramatic degree. And it's with that picture that Adams believed that he'd done this sort of uh, thing where going beyond this notion of just taking a picture of what he saw and really kind of looking at what he felt inside. Another member of the group F64 was this woman named Imogen Cunningham. We'll look at Cunningham on another uh, occasion a little bit later on, too. Uh, but uh, a really fascinating figure in photography who worked for about three quarters of the 20th century as a photographer, about a 75-year career in photography, working until just about a couple of weeks before she died. And because of that, her work crosses over from the precisionist world to the modernist world to the sort of experimental world of the 1960s and 1970s. And it's really fascinating to watch this woman change uh, everything about the way in which she thought about photography as she progressed through uh, the various eras uh, that she occupied in photography. So moving on from Group F64 to this, the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus, which sometimes, you know, we'll talk about a school, you know, and sometimes we'll say there was a school of photographers. And we don't mean a school like a school. We mean a group, right? You know, sometimes we talk about a school of thought, right, instead of a school. But in this case, the Bauhaus was actually a physical building, a school in this case. And it was a physical place where students went to study industrial design. And the concept behind this school was that it was different from any other school where design had ever been taught. 
And that was that it taught an idea of form follows function. Form follows function. Form follows function, meaning that when a student figured out how to make something, that the form of that thing, whatever it was being designed, whether it was a tractor or a tea kettle or whatever, should have a form, a physical form, that followed the function of what it was that it was supposed to do. And that the two things could be easily and inextricably linked. That the form and the function should be both considered at the beginning of the design process. So this school was really different in terms of how its founder, this guy, Laszlo Moholy-Nage, Laszlo Moholy-Nage, Oslo Moholy-Nagy set up this school with a kind of a different idea than any other school that had taught visual arts had ever really had. And his idea was, you know, most of the time throughout the ages, people have learned how to do design and art by first learning the bare minimum basic stuff. You know, artists learned how to grind pigments and carry water for the master for a couple of years until they were allowed to begin to draw, and then after they learned to draw for a few years, then they begin to learn how to you know, apply paint to a canvas. And he said, we don't want to do it that way. We want to start at the other end. We want to start at the design end, the idea end, and end up at the sort of pragmatic end. So instead of teaching students how to draw up front, they taught them how to design up front. And instead of learning the basics of drawing, they learned the basics of photography by using photograms and other photographic methods to create designs that had adequate amounts of balance, light, dark, so forth and so on, without having to learn how to do all of the drawing pieces that made shading and light and shadow, so forth. So Maholi Naj came up with this idea for this school called the Bauhaus. Here are a couple of examples of his work. And what's interesting about his work, Holy Naj uh, talked about these things as not necessarily being photographs, but rather as being pieces of artwork. They might incorporate his photographs, or they might incorporate photographs from someone else, and he might not even attribute to whom the other photographs belong. They might have been found in the trash can on the side of the road, into a wall somewhere, and he would begin to make images that uh, that depended on photographic images, but also depended on drawing. So this left-hand one is called Jealousy. And it helps to know that this is Maldonado himself, and this is his rival, and this is the object of their affection, and you can see what's going on here. Uh, but the what Maldonado called these is he called them montages. Montages, where he would put together disparate ideas into a, into a kind of a cohesive whole. Uh, and it wasn't, again, necessary that he made the photographs. What he was interested in was making something that incorporated photographic imagery. Somebody who was operating about this same time uh, was this guy named Man Ray, whose real name was Emmanuel Radnitsky. Emmanuel Radnitsky, but everyone knows him as Man Ray. You don't really need to know. Emanuel Radnitsky, uh, Man Ray is the, is the name that everybody knows him uh, by. 
he was a master of experimental photography, but also a painter, a filmmaker, a poet, an essayist, a philosopher, and a leader of American commodities. So these ideas are coming about in the 1920s, 1920s and into the 1930s, uh, as photography is beginning to kind of spread out into other areas. One of the reasons I've showed, shown you uh, Man Ray here is that those other things that I said he was, a painter, a poet, an essayist, a philosopher, photography had become a part of the world in a different way by this time period. And because of that, it was being used by artists of many different types, writers, poets, painters, and not necessarily used by them as an end product, but used by them as a potentially an intermediary product. So all three of those things, the Bauhaus and its uh, basic ideas, come together in these two ideas, Dada and Surrealism. Dada and Surrealism. So these two art movements, came out of Bauhaus concepts, Dada and Surrealism. Dada was a, a radical, uh, anarchic rejection of all things that were existing in the world previously. Essentially, it was anarchy as art, or art as anarchy. So it has fairly specific dates, 1916 to 1923. What's going on about that time? World War One, right? So Dada is this radical rejection of traditional art forms. And surrealism is art born out of Freud's concepts of the subconscious mind. So Sigmund Freud, the guy who kind of founds the idea of dreams and subconscious and how important those things are to our, our overall cultural, personal makeup, and you can see that it also has fairly concrete uh, dates, although this 1939 date kind of is fairly flexible because we still deal in today's world with surrealism. But it is completely tied to Freud, completely tied to Freud. It's not about something else. It's about the idea of dream states. So if we think about you know, Freud's ideas about what dreams mean and how our dreams sort of suggest things that are real for us in the real world. Uh, so, you know, we know sometimes, we, anybody, how many people remember all their dreams? Remember all their dreams? You do? Sorry. It seems like a tremendous burden, frankly. Uh, I remember some of mine. How many people remember some dreams? Uh, how many people have no idea if they dream or not? You know, rarely does that happen, right? So some of us remember some of our dreams, and our dreams take us to places that are so far outside of the way the real world exists. So these two art movements, they both used photography fairly extensively. And I've got some examples down the right-hand side here of some of the ideas that these art movements kind of pushed forward. So Man Ray's woman with a back that looks like a violin, Steiner's picture here of this shadow that kind of doesn't make the shadow look like the real object. And then uh, Lee Miller's upside down person with the hair flowing the wrong way. So ideas that don't necessarily tie into any other movement in photography, but 
really tie into Dadaism, Dadaist artists, and the ideas about surrealism. And again, we'll come back to these things uh, over again. So early on when we had first started talking this semester, I had said that sometimes photography changed because of ideas and sometimes photography changes because of technology. Here's a piece of technology that really changed photography, a, a camera that many people don't really know too much about, but it's, it's called the Erminox. And it initially used dry glass plates that you put into the back of the camera and take one out, put in a new one and take one out. And then eventually moved to roll film one from its little knobs on the side. And it used flexible roll film. But its biggest advantage was that it had a lens that opened up to f1.8, an unheard of large aperture. Meaning, of course, that pictures could now be taken in very, very dim lighting conditions. And in dim lighting conditions with reasonably fast shutter speeds. As film had advanced, speeds of materials had advanced, we were now dealing with ISOs that were 50 and 100 uh, ISOs in the 1920s and 30s when the, the Erminox comes out. Uh, and so here is Andre Kertesz, one of the first photographers to use these small portable cameras. Now, part of the deal here is not just that it's a fast camera that can, that can capture moments. Obviously, in Kertesz's situation, that's part of what it's about. But it also has to do with the fact that it's a camera that did not need to be on a support, like a tripod or stand. So now the camera can move around, and it can capture these sort of fleeting moments of the way life is. And Kertesz is one of the first photographers in the late 20s to begin to use this. And then we get this set of possibilities. So starting over here at the left is this thing called the Minigraph. The mini-graph. The motion picture industry had started to kind of come up about this time. And while there were no light meters, at least not light meters the way we know them, there were no light meters that existed until, oh, the 1930s or 40s or so. You know, light meters the way we kind of know them. Uh, while there were no real light meters, there were ways that you could test the film stock that you were using to shoot your motion picture. So... You know, unlike if we went over to PJ's camera over here in Glen Ellen and bought a roll of film, the roll of film that we buy that's 400 ISO now would be the same speed as it was if we bought one six months or six years ago, right? ISO is ISO. But there was no ISO, right? More or less, right? More or less. So uh, there was no ISO. There was no sort of standard for speed of materials. So this object, the Minigraph, was invented to make pictures for the motion picture industry. You've got a thousand people dressed as Roman soldiers on a set. You want to make sure that the thing is exposed correctly. So you take some of this motion picture stock, and you put it into the back of this camera, and it's a rudimentary viewfinder, and you make some pictures at various aperture and shutter speed combinations. Process it in a hurry, in a rush. You see the rushes on the latest movie, like that, right? So you process it in a hurry to make sure you get what you want. Since it needed to use the kind of film that was being used in motion picture cameras, it needed to use film that was perforated because motion picture cameras needed to move the film through the camera, stop it for a second, make a picture, move it again, stop it, move it, stop it, move it, stop it, move it, make a picture in between, right? So to do that, they used little gears. 
and those little gears engage these little sprocket holes on the side of the 35 millimeter film. So those little gears engage the sprocket holes on the film. The film then drove through the camera and then later through the projector. So this gizmo used this perforated type of film. Enter into this whole thing of this mini graph, which is not a particularly photographically inspired camera. This guy, Oscar Barnack. Barnack worked for a company called the Lights, L-E-I-T-Z, Optical Company. The Lights Optical Company. And Barnack uh, came up with an idea that what he wanted to do was move away from traditional heavy plate cameras and search for a completely new form of photographic technology. And as early as 1905, he'd come up with the idea of reducing the negative format and then later enlarging the photographs at a later time. Now, that was possible because, of course, this contact printing phenomenon that we talked about in the 19th century had improved in its speed as well. So while films had improved in their speed, so had printing materials improved in their speed. And, of course, we're now dealing with an era of electric light. So we could enlarge negatives in a consistent fashion using an electric light that we could turn on and off, unlike the previous contact prints, which needed the sun, which was hard to turn on and off. So Barnack comes up with a camera that looked like this. You put a viewfinder up on top, and a little lens cap that you could swing down in front, a shutter release, and a knob on the bottom that you would turn the key to expose, to bring new film into the, into the exposure chamber. And he, while he was working for the lights optical company, he decided to call it the lights camera, which in practice was Leica. So Barnack invents the Leica, the first 35 millimeter film camera that was intended specifically to make still photographs. Prior to that time, other cameras used this kind of sprocketed film, but they weren't intended to use to make still photographs. And of course, one of the first people to embrace this technology was Henri Cartier. Bresson. Henri Cartier-Bresson. Cartier-Bresson recognized that this new small type of camera was a completely different strategy than any photography mechanism that existed before. It's capable of doing it. could do new things. It was small. It was portable. You could hide under your jacket until the last possible second and take it out and make a photograph. And he began making photographs that depended on a phrase that he coined called the decisive moment decisive moment. The decisive moment was that moment at which all of the elements of the frame kind of came into a harmonious, harmonious whole. The decisive moment. Cartier-Bresson's decisive moment. That, by the way, is one of those. We'll, we'll, we'll come to a number of these throughout the semester. I'll give you a heads up. You're at a you know photo gallery opening. There's somebody you'd like to be able to talk to you know, over standing with one of the photos. You sidle up next to him and say, probably really captured the decisive moment. <laughs> and I'll say, hey, you know something about the doggy. Maybe we could go get a drink now. Like that. <laughs> right? So you get the you get the so the decisive moment is one of those one of those things. Juxtaposition is another thing. Get the juxtaposition. So all right. So uh, the decisive moment, and you know, again, we'll come back to Brisson at a later time, but one of the things that I've always found fascinating about him was that not only is he at the right place at the right time, but he's actually at the right place a little bit before the right time, right? 
is able to anticipate the threshold of a moment, which is something really remarkable. So one of the other shortcomings that we talked about at the very beginning uh, today was color, or rather, the lack of color. So uh, the first feasible color process was something called the autochrome, invented by the Lumiere brothers. How much do you love that? The Light brothers inventing color, the first feasible commercially available color photographic process. Available around the turn of the century, uh, here is Edward Steichen, interestingly, remember one of the photosecessionist guys photographing George Bernard Shaw in 1906. This process was patented uh, in 1903 in France and marketed throughout uh, the early part of the 1900s. And it remained the principal color photographic process available on the market until 1935. And there's a great explanation of autochrome in the textbook. Uh, and and you'll, this will be one of those things that might drive you to read it because I will tell you that autochrome depends on thousands and thousands and thousands of little grains of potato starch, and corn starch, and potato starch. A third of those grains are dyed orange, a third of them green, and a third of them purple. Those little grains of potato starch are coated over a black and white photographic emulsion exposed through the grains of potato starch, which act as filters. A reversal process ends up creating a positive image, which then viewed again through the potato starch grains creates a color. Amazing, but true. Tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. However, it had some drawbacks. One, it was on a piece of glass, so it was fragile. Two, it was kind of finicky. You had to get the exposure right on. All the processing was kind of difficult. It worked, but it wasn't that easy to do. Um, and the fact that it was on this piece of glass meant that it was kind of difficult to reproduce, right? Because you could only make this one. So it's kind of like stepping back to uh, the daguerreotype process in a way. So as you might imagine, George Eastman had been trying to figure out how to make color photographs. I mean, he'd made a huge, huge splash with his Kodak camera and a number of other models of camera that came beyond and after that 1888 invention of the Kodak. And so his scientists and his labs tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried, and tried to make color photographic emulsions work, and they had a hard time. It wasn't really working. Until these two guys came along. They were actually musicians, Leopold Godowski and Leopold Manns. Godowski and Manns came along, and they said to Eastman, you know, we think we know how to do this. And Eastman said, well, you know, I've got some of the brightest minds in chemistry working on this. And they said, no, 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 I think we've, we've got it. But you just need to give us a lab a bunch of workers, and a lot of money. And uh, Eastman said, well, I don't know, I don't think so. Send them away. And they came back. You know, I think I think we got it. I know you're having trouble with it. Yeah. So eventually, he gave them the job. He gave them the lab. Uh, and Godowski and Manns, who became known in the annals of Kodak history as God and Man, invented <laughs> Kodachrome. Kodachrome in 1935. Kodowski and Manns. So Kodachrome was based on uh, the Eastman, Eastman again striking, but kind of striking by being smart enough to figure out where he couldn't figure it out. Uh, 
So they invented this in 1934, released to the public in 1935. And what they did was they based color photography instead of on the additive principle, which is what everybody had been trying, including the Lumiere brothers with, with uh, the autochrome. He based it on, instead, they based it on subtractive color theory with the film producing dyes of magenta, yellow, and cyan that blocked out the light you didn't need to see in the color that you didn't need to see in the picture and created for you the correct color, you know, transparency. So uh, it was first sold as 16 millimeter movie film in 1935, eight millimeter, eight millimeter movie film, and 35 millimeter still film in 1936. Uh, and again, used this subtractive color theory. And uh, uh, then in 1941, uh, they came out with Code of Color, which was the negative version of the original transparency film. So the negative version. And again, here's Edward Steichen now in the 1930s shooting this picture with Kodachrome uh, in the 1930s. So uh, Steichen seems to be everywhere. As we'll find out later, Steichen kind of follows the history of the medium uh, from the turn of the century through the, the later part of the the later part of the middle part of the, of the 20th century. So, a question. Deb? Expense is part of it. It was more expensive to, to do color, color imaging. You know, it was a much more expensive proposition. Uh, so, you're right. It, it did take a while to catch on. You know, sort of like you know, uh, and the only example I can think of in our contemporary society is uh, you know, flat screen televisions. You know, flat screen televisions kind of like chug to a start and then all of a sudden the floodgates open and you know, now it's fairly unusual to see an old, an old style television set, relatively speaking, right? So, and part of that was the cost came down and part of it was a bunch of other marketing factors. But, so you're right. You're right. It did take a little while to catch on. So here is uh, a photographer who began to use color photography almost right away in the pursuit of fashion. Uh, a photographer named Horst, who liked his last name so much he took it as his first name as well, Horst P. Horst. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things that was really interesting about Horst as a fashion photographer was that Prior to Horst, most fashion photographs were a subject, a model, standing, modeling the dress or the suit in front of the camera, like that. Horst was one of the first people to recognize that what fashion photography could be was about selling emotion as much as selling the object itself. And so he began to recognize that lighting, quality of lighting, so forth and so on, uh, had something to do with this whole strategy of how you could market something. Really interesting photography. So does anybody recognize this picture or have it sort of ring a bell anywhere? What if I show you this picture? It's interesting how popular culture changes. Madonna from the video Vogue. So if you go back and you find that video somewhere on YouTube, what you'll discover is that Madonna lifted about 90% of the visuals of that video, Vogue, from Horst's photographs. So it's pretty hard to mistake you know, what's going on in the, 
in this video still from Madonna's video book. And what's really interesting is that when I would show this, when this video was a popular musical thing that was happening in the world, I'd put this image on screen and everybody would go, Madonna! It's interesting how pop culture sort of drifts by us, right? All right, from that we go on to this, the Farm Security Administration. So, many of you probably know about the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, right? The WPA. We piddle along. We piddle along, right? So, the WPA was the Make Work Organization proposed by the New Deal to put people back to work after the Great Depression. The Farm Security Administration, FSA, heretofore known as FSA, the Farm Security Administration was uh, a, a, an organization, a governmental organization, that intended to try and solve a kind of a double whammy that had happened in America. One was the Great Depression, the other was a tremendous drought in the South and West parts of the United States. And so a guy named Roy Stryker sent out a bunch of relatively untested new photographers, including this woman, Dorothea Lang, sent these photographers out into the, into the United States to photograph and use those photographs to sort of engender different kinds of public opinion back in Washington and across the country. So uh, documentary photography was their strategy to document what was going on. So here we see uh, Lang's pictures. Uh, and a couple of things about Lang's pictures and some of the things that we can begin to think about relative to thinking about how photographers work. Lang liked to use a camera where she looked down into a viewfinder like this. So that meant that it was easy for her to make pictures from low camera positions like you see in both of these images. It's also important to know that tractored out meant that what had happened was a small family farm had been bought by a giant farming conglomerate and they had tractored right up to the doorway of the, of the farmhouse uh, because they had, had removed this small uh, family farm and had replaced it with a large corporate farm. So one of the things that's interesting about the FSA photographs is that they are all owned by the Library of Congress because they were made for us. We own them. We own all of these pictures, we citizens of the United States. And what's really interesting is that you can go to the Library of Congress website and find the picture that you like and order a print for a small amount of money. So you can own your own Dorothea Lang migrant mother photograph for $25 or something like that. Really expensive. Arthur Rothstein, Walker Evans, a couple of other uh, uh, members of the FSA group uh, that were out there making photographs out in uh, the American West and South. Uh, and probably many of you have seen this photograph uh, as well as the, the mother photograph that we just looked at by Dorothea Lang uh, as an example of an, a photograph that defines a particular era. The critic uh, Glenway Westcott wrote about Walker Evans for me, this is better propaganda than it would be if it were not aesthetically enjoyable. It's because I enjoy looking that I go on looking until the pity and shame are impressed upon me unforgettably. Talking about the meager conditions that these people were living under. So, sort of to round out our afternoon here, we'll take a look at photography since 1945 or thereabouts. 
and we'll take a look at some of the things that happen, some major technological advances of speed, automation, and of course the digital era occurred since that time period, about 1945. And then we also can kind of look at photography's place in the world, because since that time period, about 1945 or a little afterward, photography was fairly easily seen as both commerce and art. There was no longer a distinction uh, that sort of suggested it could only be one or the other. Uh, and photography began to kind of claim a place in the world that suggested that it was both an art form and a motion of, 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 of sort of a strategy of commerce. So one of the ways that photography kind of became a more popular public object uh, was this guy, Edwin Land. Edwin Land, who invented the Polaroid camera uh, in uh, 1948. So he came up with the first idea of being able to have instantaneous images. Instantaneous images that would pop out of the camera or be uh, squeegeed out of the camera. In the case of this, you can see him peeling apart these, this picture because the early Polaroid images would peel apart and the later Polaroid squirting out of the camera. And that kind of photography changed the way photography functioned. It changed how photography was. Because no longer was it just make a picture and then look at that picture some distance in time from the time it was made. It was make a picture and look at it just a few minutes later. Just a few minutes after this. You could examine the picture and begin to think about what that picture meant. And take another one if you didn't like that first one. So Edwin Land, and sometimes people see, you know, it says Polaroid automatic land camera. It wasn't meant that it was only used on land and not on the sea. It was that the guy's name was Land, so um, inventing the Polaroid camera. On the artistic side of photography, this guy, Minor White, one of my favorite photographer names, Minor White, a musician was a major chord. You know, so Minor White, a photographer who came of age uh, at the time that this group F64 had kind of taken hold. And he studied with and, and, and knew Adams and Weston and worked with them with the whole idea of this precisionist movement in photography, pristine prints, great depth of field, so forth and so on. But he brought his own sort of hippie era spin to this in the 1960s and 1970s partly by holding court at a kind of commune that he held together for photographers in New York State, uh, where people could move in for a while and make photographs and talk about photographs and you know, work on the farm and so forth and so on. But he also had a kind of mental philosophical idea about photography. For Minor White, photography wasn't like a religion. It was religion. Photography was like you know, practicing photography was like practicing religion. He brought with him some ideas about uh, Buddhism and Zen philosophy and combined them with this Group F64 idea to create a kind of a new idea about photography. And some of the things about Minor White that were really interesting was that he began to realize that a photograph may be more than just the thing itself, more than the subject, more than the print. For Minor White, the photograph wasn't a complete thing until 
he made the photograph, developed the film, printed the image, matted the image, and then showed it to someone. It was that showing it to someone that completed the circle of having the photograph actually exist. Because until that circle was completed of showing someone his personal vision, uh, it, it didn't exist. Roy de Carava, an African-American photographer photographing in his native Harlem uh, in the 1950s. And photographing for the first time his native world from the inside. Instead of somebody looking from the outside at a culture that they didn't understand, he lived in the culture. He was the culture. And so he photographed his own culture. His own culture. Jerry Yulesman, a photographer who in the 1960s began to take separate negatives and put separate negatives in up to six or seven different enlargers. Take those separate negatives and print them one after the other after the other onto the same piece of photographic printing paper, creating these surrealistic plastic compositions. I see a few of you nodding about Jerry Yulesman, which is cool because Jerry's awesome. So uh, the idea here that this, this was synthetic photography, making something that didn't exist prior to the time that Yulesman puts together multiple negatives. What I find really interesting is that what he's doing in the 1960s was being done in the 1850s and 1860s, right? This whole same idea of creating images out of disparate parts. Olivia Parker, who in an almost single-handed fashion returned photography to an interest in still life. Now, obviously, still life photography was very important uh, in the early years of photography because the stuff didn't move. But Olivia Parker recognizes that still life had some possibilities in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. She began to recognize that it had some possibilities that hadn't been explored, possibilities of sculptural depth, possibilities of pictorial space that nobody thought about before. Moreover, she also used Polaroid material. Having had a background as a painter and not as a photographer, she was really interested in working in color, but color had always been problematic because you only got the color that Kodak's Kodachrome or Kodacolor told you you could have. With the Polaroid material, Olivia Parker discovered that she could take the Polaroid peel-apart film holder and stick it under her armpit for a few minutes warm it up before she developed the film and come out with a completely different color palette. She could change the filtration over the lens and change the way the colors looked. She could lengthen or shorten the exposure time or the development time and change the way the colors responded. And she thought of it as something that was akin to the activity of painting. Annie Leibovitz. Leibowitz is a really interesting figure to me in photography because when I started teaching the history of photography a bunch of years ago, Leibowitz was what I would think of as a very competent, successful commercial photographer. You know, the cover of Rolling Stone magazine was always, always Leibowitz's photograph, so forth and so on. And then I began to recognize that students were starting to write papers about Annie Leibowitz. 
this. And I was like, well, you know, I suppose you could write about a contemporary commercial photographer, but why wouldn't you write about Weston or Adams or Stevens? And then I recognized that what Leibowitz was doing was chronicling her culture and therefore the student's culture, really talking about what that culture was and exploring it in a, in a bigger and deeper way. Anybody know who the guy on the right is? Well, the Belushi's. Oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah, the Belushi's. There he is. Right. <laughs> you got it. You're almost there. No, 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 no. Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys. So, and of course, what Leibowitz has become very well known for is posing her subjects in ways that kind of clue us into their essential characteristics. Another interesting character here is this guy, David Hockney. Now, if you were to go and kind of Google David Hockney, you'd probably find stuff about painting, primarily, and maybe also about photography, secondarily. Hockney is an artist who uses photography sometimes. He's probably best known in the world as a painter, but he's always been really interested in optical technologies, and painters often are interested in optical technologies. So here's David Hockney creating painterly-like images, but in this case, it's all Polaroid SX-70 style, squirted out of the camera pictures, created as a composited portrait of this subject. And here, these are four by six, four by six inch drugstore style prints. Again, all composited into a complete whole. So he's exploring the idea of the world of the photographer, but also the world of the painter. And one of the things that I've included him for is that here in our uh, 20th and 21st centuries, <coughs> toward the end of where we'll wind up and talking about in this, in this course as a whole, photography and painting and drawing and sculpture and kind of everything else kind of all blend together in a lot of ways. Photoshop is a painting software. It comes right down to it. Cindy Sherman, a portraitist who has been photographing mostly herself for about 35 or 40 years, almost exclusively herself, oftentimes posed in elaborate costumes and makeup. In this case, in this particular image, a picture that is part of what she calls the history series. The history series, which replicates paintings of various eras. In this case, Caravaggio's youthful Bacchus from the 1500s. Robert Maplethorpe a photographer who achieved a tremendous amount of notoriety, uh, partly because he had gotten a grant from the U.S. government, a National Endowment for the Arts grant, uh, and uh, his uh, homoerotic imagery caught the uh, attention of some conservative members of Congress who then decided that the NEA was giving away money to uh, people who shouldn't be given money and sort of essentially shut down the National Endowment for the Arts, or at least its grant-giving ideas. But all Maplethorpe was really doing was putting men and women and flowers and any other thing that he found to be 
the most beautiful, the most sort of zenith of what it was that he was interested in uh, on a pedestal. Richard Misrak, uh, whose dedication to the Southwest's desert at first seems to echo a landscape documentary tradition more than the social documentary work which he began his career with, but his lifetime project, <clears throat> which he called the Desert Cantos series, with individual segments divided up in between terrain and events, floods and fires, ends up having as much to do with social issues as it does with man's presence in nature. And one of the reasons I've included Misrak here is that he points out an example of contemporary photographers who don't necessarily just use photographs of the subject to convey their ideas about what that subject is, but look at other things. Look at other things. Those photographs, the photographs that Misrak makes are both about the land, they're also about the way in which man uses the land, the way we confront the land, how we deal with it, what we're doing to protect it. So he goes beyond just making a landscape photograph and invests his images with a tremendous amount of depth of idea. Sally Mann, who in the 1980s also uh, had uh, some run-ins with uh, the political world because she also had received a National Endowment for the Arts grant. Uh, this set of images that we're looking at here, a pair of images and then a, another one on the next screen, uh, are from a body of work that she created called At 12, which explored the kind of in-between girl and woman world of 12-year-old girls, sort of looking at them and trying to figure out what happens in that sort of intervening time period between childhood and womanhood uh, and exploring that kind of budding sexuality. And again, all she was really doing was putting uh, these young women on a pedestal. And we'll look at Sally Mann a, lot, a little bit more as we go along, too. Then another piece of technology, this guy, Steve Sasson, in 1975 invents the first digital camera. Here it is, such as it is. The storage medium. Crazy, right? Cassette tape. But Sasson is the father of the digital camera. He's the first person to figure out how to turn light signals into electrical signals and that those electrical signals could be made into a picture using these pixel elements, picture elements, pixels. And it wasn't until this guy, Bruce Bayer, who came up with the Bayer filter, allowed us to have digital single-lens reflex cameras of the type that all of us have. So if you have a DSLR or a point-and-shoot camera or whatever, it's using Bruce Bayer's filter, which filters the light, entering the light sensors, so that it only sees each light sensor, each pixel sensor only sees red or green or blue, but not the other colors. And then he figured out software to interpolate in between the ones that each other pixel is seeing. So if this pixel is seeing green, he figured out, software that would tell that pixel what it would see if it would see red or blue. Bruce Bayer. And then, of course, the advent of Photoshop. And Photoshop and other image manipulation technologies that allow 
photographers like Martina Lopez to take photographs of her Mexican ancestors and combine them with post-apocalyptic landscapes that she created, creating a new fictional landscape, a new fictional idea of family and what family is. Gregory Crudson photographing in the 90s and creating a body of work that is about a kind of a supernatural, unnatural world. When we look at these pictures, at first they sort of seem like, well, well, wow, that's, that's terrible that there's been this accident with this bus. And then it just seems improbable. Everybody's standing around and one person's standing on top of the bus. And how did Crudson get there with his 8x10 camera? Where is the 8x10 camera standing to be able to make this photograph? Crudson's crew, because he works with a crew of several dozen people, build sets, create images that they might work on for several months before they actually spend the half a day making the photographs. On the other hand, Arno Minkinen, Arno Minkinen does no such manipulation of anything. He doesn't use Photoshop. In fact, he does all of his work in a traditional film-based black and white darkroom. Minkinen makes photographs of himself, almost exclusively. And if it looks like he's standing on water, he is. If it looks like he's balancing on a boat, he is. They're not manipulated images. They're straightforward photographs that explore man's relationship with the natural world. Joel Peter Whitkin. Joel Peter Whitkin, whose work kind of bridges an interesting gap between the 20th century, when he did most of these pictures in the 1980s, 90s, and, and beyond. But also they have a kind of a look and feel of some of the 19th century pictures we looked at last week. Abraded surfaces. Vignetting that kind of gives the idea that perhaps it's not really supposed to be exactly like that, but he was stuck with. And then we wonder about, you know, which parts are real? Which parts are prosthetic? Are these prosthetics? Are they real? Is this real? He's not manipulating anything in the computer. Is that a real severed arm? Is it a prop? And as we'll see, he's really drawing on the history of art to make these pictures that are very much like pictures that came from the early years of the history of art. And finally, slightly out of sequence, uh, but uh, Mary Ellen Mark, a photojournalist whose work you see all the time, uh, photographing here at Mother Teresa's mission, kind of brings us to the end. So we've progressed from painting and drawing as the only forms of visual expression to photography of a fairly sophisticated caliber in a pretty short period of time. Photography supplanted and replaced painting, taking over painting's role as observer, as portraitist, as recorder, 
Painting was difficult, it was expensive, it was precious, it recorded what was known to be important, but photography was cheap and easy and everywhere. And it recorded just about anything. Shop windows and sod houses and family pets and steam engines and the work of people who felt that human missionary work was their important job. Once made objective and permanent, these trivial things take on a new importance. And by the end of the 19th century, for the first time in history, even a poor child knew what his ancestors looked like. The history of photography has been less of a journey than a kind of a growth. It's one of the reasons that something like this, this overview of last week and this week, it's been a little difficult because it seems like everything's happening all at once. And what I'm going to try and do for us over the next bunch of weeks is unpack some of those things and see if we can figure out what's happening at various times, kind of different, different ideological uh, places. Photography was born whole, and it's in our progressive discovery of it that its history lies. So now that we have a sense of the progression of a medium from its inception to a few of its present-day concerns, our job now is to kind of untangle all of that stuff and analyze all of that stuff. All of these discoveries of the past uh, photographers that we've looked at and many that we haven't looked at yet. And as we look at it, we have to kind of figure out how we can get to a place where regardless of where you stand on the scale of the spiritual world, the fact that the photograph can render the communion wafer as pure light is a pretty profound symbolic idea. So our examinations follow the examinations that other people have had over the course of learning about what photography is and how we get from this thing or to this thing from that thing. How did we get from point A to point B? So, and eventually I hope we'll build an understanding of what photography means uh, to each and every one of you.